this is Teresa, and welcome to episode three of Talking with Tea. In today's episode, I have my friend Emily joining me as we talk about attachment theory in relation to our identities, intergenerational trauma, and self-love. Hello, Emily. Welcome to the pod. <laughs> so good to see you. Thank you. So much for having me. Of course. So today I have um, my good friend Emily. We met in college. Um, but before we do any introductions, Emily, what kind of tea are you drinking today? So I'm drinking. Um, it's called burdock root tea in Japanese. It's called gobocha, mm. and. I don't know much about it. All I know is that it tastes really good. My mom gave it to me like when she was in Japan and I've just had it ever since because um, it's like from imported from Japan. It tastes so good. I love it. <laughs> That's all I got to say. And it's just so warm and very homey. I love that. I was about to ask, is it like a Japanese tea? Is it like popular in Japan? Um... Uh, is it popular in Japan? I don't know. Definitely one of the lesser known teens for sure. Um, but I think it's also popular in like Korea. Um, yeah, it, it's really good. It, it has a so, flavor similar to barley tea. Mm. Yeah, like, I love like, barley. Tea flavor. Yeah, highly mm. recommend. It's great. Great. Thank you for sharing. So I'm going to um, share a fact about burdock tea. Okay. a burdock root tea. Yeah. So people take burdock to increase urine flow, kill germs, reduce fever, and purify their blood. That sounds amazing. That sounds um, something like something Asians would drink. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm obviously, you know, trying to maintain that urine flow and purify my blood, you know, so <laughs> I drink my burdock root tea. Amazing. Amazing. Let's go into introductions. So could you introduce yourself? Um, how do you identify anything you want to let the people know? Sure. So as you know, my name is Emily. I'm currently based in Brooklyn, New York. Um, and as Teresa mentioned before, we met in college and we both went to NYU. Um, but I'm originally from New Jersey. My family is res residing in New Jersey. Um, I currently work at a law firm in the diversity and inclusion department, which is interesting because um, it's a new kind of industry and it's kind of like working in a nonprofit within like a for-profit organization because like I'm working at this like big corporate law firm that like deals with like mergers and acquisitions of like big banks and stuff but it's it's fun I, I, I like my job um in terms of like how I identify I'm definitely like Asian American woman also recently Asian American uh queer woman um I also I'm part Japanese uh I do identify with my Japanese identity, but I, I think like just there aren't many Japanese folks around in New York City, um, at least uh, within like my vicinity. So I think I just more so identify with like the general Asian American experience. The first question I have for you, um, just hearing you introduce yourself, was that you mentioned that more recently um, you identify as queer Asian American woman. So I guess since we're there right now, could you tell us why recently or how that kind of happened for you? Yeah, so it was like during COVID um, when we were all quarantined, I was quarantined at my parents' house um, and I was really depressed. Um, and I was just like really kind of just in my feelings. I haven't really seen anyone talk to anyone. And I think I read a really interesting tweet that 
says something like um something along the lines of the reason why we're all coming out they did not say that but something along those lines right um during COVID is because like gender and sexuality are like performances that we put on um in front of our peers or just in front of society and I like thought about that a lot and I got like really serious with myself I'm just thinking like okay like do I actually only just like cisgender heterosexual men and I realized that I've always been interested in, in women I'm interested in girls I've um <laughs> I was like queer experience as far as I can remember is when I was hugging my preschool teacher and I was like trying to like get in between her breasts you know like I was like man like boobies like um and like I always um even though yeah like I'm a cisgender woman I, I I've always kind of struggled with uh femininity my own femininity whatever that means um just because like I feel like I was always like the tallest girl at school and you know Asian women are supposed to be so small and petite and I'm tall and I'm kind of loud and and I'm really like uh I'm a klutz I I'm not like you know cutesy uh I just whenever I would go to Japan like I would just be like that one weird like a American cousin and um I would just would always be judged because I wasn't like subscribing to their gender roles and so I was just like thinking and I was just like okay like I don't necessarily identify as they them I'm very more of a I go by she her pronouns but what does that mean then like I guess what I'm trying to say is like I'm a cis woman but there's something that's like not super hetero about me like I think there's something there that I'm like trying to explore um and and so when I went to when I moved out to New York I started dating girls um but then I realized like wait like this isn't working out because I was like kind of getting to know these girls like as friends and like I found them like really attractive and like found them easy to talk to but again something was off and then I realized doing a little bit more digging and and I think obviously this is because of like heteronormative constructs in society blah 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 that I, I think I'm just more like physically attracted to women. I've never kissed a woman. I've never had sex, but I just think that, you know, that's something that I've been willing to try. And I'm very, I find women very physically attractive, but I'm scared to like act upon it um, just because like, it's such a new experience. But I think in terms of like finding a romantic partner for some goddamn reason, it's this man like that I'm attracted to. Um, but I don't know, but there's also like some reservation for me to like identify as queer just because I feel like I'm very straight passing um, and like I've always dated men and I don't want to just kind of claim this identity when you know there are this is kind of problematic to say but there are people who are like actually queer whatever that means um, I don't know if I like a hundred percent identify with it that's why like I kind of when I was introducing myself I kind of struggled to say like oh I think I'm queer like I'm a queer Asian American woman and and I think my I specific identity would be like bisexual but I think I've always struggled with identifying as bisexual because um there's a lot of like uh, bisexual erasure for women like and I was like thinking like okay am I only like saying that I'm bisexual because like I want these men to like think that like oh, it's so hot that I'm like into women and I like, want their validation like that's something that I I'm still kind of struggling with like I I don't know exactly what I want but I, I definitely know like I'm not like a hundred percent straight like I know like my there's like some my sexuality is like not in a box you know mm -hmm. and I, I think women are fucking hot um <laughs> and yeah that's that is how I identify it in terms of my sexuality. Yeah. And so many things you just said, like resonates with me a hundred percent. 
um, even like that example of about looking at your teacher's boobs, like I had the same <laughs> experience. Like I remember, I think I was six or something. And like my teacher like came to school with this like V-neck, her boobs were popping out and everything. And I, I remember like looking at her boobs and like really admiring it. Like, it's crazy. I just yeah. <laughs> like- like the reason why, you know, you're on this episode today is because I feel like we have so many overlapping um, identities and experiences. Um, and like going back to what you said about identifying as bisexual, I think for me, when I found out in um, like sophomore year of high school that I could be into girls, like that was so hard to accept. Um, and it took me a long time to accept. And um, even now, like it's been 10 plus years since I have been with um, like my first girlfriend. And even now um, I still struggle with like, oh, am I bisexual? Am I pansexual? Like, mm-hmm. I, I, I feel like, yeah, yeah, right. It's like constantly changing and shifting. Um, and, you know, what you said about it's not like my identities don't just fit in a box. Um, I completely agree. Everything I think is on a spectrum. And um, that tweet you saw, I think I saw the same one about like being, you know, at home and not being able to really perform your femininity or masculinity and just, you know, what, what does that look like when you can't perform it, you know? So there's so much there. Um, I love that you shared that with us today. Um, I think going back to the idea of like our overlapping identities, I wonder, aside from sexuality growing up, like what other parts of your identities really drove your experiences growing up? Um, You said in New Jersey, right? Yeah. Um, So my Japanese American identity was quite complicated growing up because I went to Japanese school um I had like friends in Japanese school but I was like the only Japanese kid in like my public school right like Mm. and it was really hard I didn't feel like there were a lot of um Japanese students around me I didn't get any support being Japanese we had like Japanese classes but everyone who took them were like fucking weebs like I don't relate to anybody at all um and oh yeah but I do remember this one incident um honors American history grade 10 where I had this really conservative right-wing social studies teacher it was a lot um American history teacher and we had a debate on whether like Japanese American internment um like so uh, the sorry the predecessors of the survivors of the Japanese American internment camps deserved reparations and it was funny because like I said I was like the only Japanese student, but in reality, there were other Japanese American students, but I would say like they were really whitewashed. They were like half white, half Japanese. Like they were just whitewashed. Like I'm gonna unapologetically said, say that like they were. Um, and, but it was funny because like those two students and me who were the only Japanese American kids in the grade were the ones arguing for pro reparations. And then there were three white students who were very clearly uncomfortable arguing for con but at the end when clearly you know we were like the pro side one that we need reparations like you know fuck you my teacher came up to me and she was just like well obviously like that's ridiculous like it wasn't even that bad 
And I'm just like, what? Like, oh I wasn't like woke at the time, but like something didn't like sit right with me when she said that. Yeah. But then like, now that like I come to NYU, I take the Asian American studies classes. I learn exactly the reality of what the, these were concentration camps. They were not Holocaust concentration camps, but they were concentration camps to have your, um, your property, your you know way of life stripped away from you because of your identity. That is oppression. That is literally like a fucking war crime, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, I, I had to one of from one of my classes at NYU, like we read the you know the Korematsu case and like we dissected that a little bit, and and I was just like, wow, like that made me even more mad about what my history teacher said. Mm-hmm. So. You know, from that history debate, I started to think a little bit more about my Japanese American identity, what that meant. Mm-hmm. I didn't really know much about like Japanese American history, but I knew that in this reality that I'm living in, I was basically the only Japanese kid that I think was closer to Japanese culture and, you know, in relativity to all the other Japanese Americans in my school who I think were again whitewashed maybe you know I was whitewashed too like I don't know I'm not perfect I'm not like also I'm not full Japanese I'm one eighth but I am very Asian presenting so I identify as such right mm-hmm. um and I I just remember like so I had the privilege I still have the privilege of going to Japan every year to um oh except this year because of COVID uh be, to see my family and I I have two passports. I have my Japanese passport and I have my American passport. And technically you're supposed to choose, um, as a Japanese citizen, you're supposed to choose like which nation if you're a dual citizen um, by like the age of 22, but it's like whatever, you don't really have to. And so I have two and I'm technically a Japanese citizen. I'm a, I'm a Japanese person. And there was a time when like, I really wanted to move to Japan. I really wanted to like come back home. I really mm-hmm. wanted to connect more with my culture. I took all these Japanese classes. I was doing so well in Japanese school. I was, you know, almost fluent, right? And then I would go to Japan and I remember I would try to talk to like Japanese employee, like the employees there. Or I remember I was actually, it was a dance class. I took hip hop classes at the time. And I went to this dance studio and I was like, oh, like, I'm, I'm here for my, like, 3.30 class or whatever. And then the attendant was like, and I said in a pretty okay Japanese, you know, I wasn't, like, stuttering. Like, it was fine. It was simple Japanese. And the attendant goes back to, like, her friends or, or their employees or whatever, coworkers. And then she's just like, she literally says in front of my face, thinking that I don't understand, like, that foreigner over there wants to know about the 3.30 class. And I'm just like, I just fucking left. And literally the same day, I literally asked the station master on the, on the subway station, like, oh, where can I go? Like, where can I find this exit? And he's just like, Obadea. And I'm just like, I'm literally asking in like fluent Japanese. I did not, sorry, I did not stutter. Like I was so upset. Um, and I literally started crying to my mom. I literally was like, this country doesn't accept me. Like, fuck it. Like I'm fucking American. I'm getting rid of my, getting rid of my Japanese passport. And then, I don't know, like, from that point on, I realized that identity is complicated, you know, the whole, uh, there's this great poem, like, it's about, like, the diaspora, the diaspora blues, and it's, like, home is, like, neither here nor there, um, it's by, I think, an African or, or Black poet, um, and I really resonate that, because, with mm-hmm. that, because, um, I don't know, like, I, I've always wanted to go back, and I'm thinking of, of going, going back for a little bit uh, after COVID ends, but I just think, like, 
I mean, first of all, Japan is like so fucked up in terms of it's like socio-political values, like it's social issues. It's so mm. like backwards and so fucking misogynistic and I'm racist. I would scream every time I would go to Japan and be like, fuck off. Um, but you know, like I think the reality is because like America, especially New York City is very diverse. And, you know, I have the privilege of knowing like, you know, people like you, like, you know, just Asian American people that are similar to me that have like diverse identities. And I, I think like, I feel a little bit more at home in the States, especially in New York City. I would not survive in like Bumblefuck, Pennsylvania like or what or fucking minnesota like i will never go there i will not touch that i'm sorry i just can't i'm scared um unless i'm like with white people it's fine but like i i don't know like i i think that's why i identify mostly as like asian american because i feel like even though i've had these specific experiences related to me being japanese american or just japanese i I think all Asian American, not all, but like most Asian American kids have had similar experiences, right? Mm-hmm. Feeling like they don't belong to one country or the other, feeling that, um, you know, they're disconnected from their culture, from their, uh, from their language. I've fucking known Japanese anymore. Whenever I talk to my mom, it's like in Japan list. So many parts stuck out to me um, when you mentioned that you said to your mom, like, Um, about Japan like this country doesn't accept me like we can say the same thing about America and Mm. and that's what freaking sucks you know it's like these countries don't accept Mm. us like where the fuck do we go where do we belong Um, and this idea of like home and you know community I think has also plagued me and why I decided to also like take Asian American studies classes at NYU Um, And I legit like majored in um, East Asian studies as well to to learn Mandarin. And then I also did Asian American studies just to like find my home, like find somewhere where I belong and try to like identify that for myself. So I totally can relate to like that struggle of just, you know, not belonging anywhere and trying to find that place to belong. Um, And also like, yeah, just your experiences. I feel like I'm talking to myself. Like literally yeah, everything you said, I can relate. Um, yeah. And you uh, shared with me, um, I think a few weeks ago, that you have struggled with mental health as well. And, you know, that's something that I'm really trying to talk about more in my yeah. personal life now and like on this podcast so I was wondering if you can share a little bit about that and how that mm-hmm. intertwines with your identities yeah um there is a lot um, <laughs> about this but I guess like to kind of um specify your question a little bit I will go into like how I started therapy Mm. um so I started therapy like I actually started therapy and when I say actually like I did go when I was at NYU just like the school counseling you know I did that too how was that for you actually it was like the thing is like I think at the time like I was just kind of doing it because I was in crisis when I just needed someone to talk to and like that was it I wasn't like trying to like actually do the work in terms of like developing myself like healing like from like whatever I had to heal from right and whatever I still have to heal from um so I started therapy in November of 2019 I was incredibly depressed and I was unemployed I graduated in May 2019 and I was desperately looking for work 
Um, I was dealing with a debilitating injury, which I'm still recovering from. And I was also living at home with my parents in the middle of nowhere, New Jersey. (laughs) But most of all, I was in an incredibly toxic and unstable relationship. And I sought therapy initially because I wanted to solve this relationship. And when I mean solve this relationship, I wanted to like solve myself because I thought I was the problem. I just thought I wasn't like doing enough, right? I was just, when I look at my, back at my journal entries about that relationship, I cringe because I was essentially gaslighting myself. I was like, okay, like he just like, he just like needs more space. Like he just like, you know, like I, I'm just, I'm the problem. Mm. And then like, I was also like, okay, like this weekend, like he didn't get mad at me. He didn't yell at me this weekend. Like I visited him and I didn't cry, you know? And and it took me a long time to realize that I wasn't the issue. And I was actually, and I struggled to say this word um, because I don't want to like make light of it, but I was in an abusive situation. And I think abuse can take many forms. I don't think it just has to be hitting you and calling your names. I think there's, whether he intended to or not, I think he was, his words, his tone to me was abusive. Mm-hmm. Um, he was emotionally wrecking me and I had to get out of that situation but I I was at a point where honestly like I was like oh I'm just gonna get couples therapy for us I'm gonna pay for it I was so desperate and this guy like he was like oh like I'm like getting therapy like I'm seeking help because I was like need help Mm -hmm. he fucking I think he like lied to me and and the thing is throughout the whole relationship he was just lying to me he I found out I don't want to get too much into it because that's not the point, but you know, just six months he would lie to me and I just exposed him and I would still stay with him because I just wanted to be attached to someone and kind of bringing off a little bit. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with attachment styles. Mm, yes. So I think you did talk about it in your last podcast a little bit. Did you? I think uh, so. I'm not sure, but okay. I'm like recently I've been so into it, but yes, tell yeah, me. Yeah. So I mean, for our listeners out there, whoever has gotten to this point is still listening. Thank you. Bless you. Um, There are three attachment styles. Oh, basically like the essence of attachment theory is that our relationship with our caregivers during our childhood um, is uh, informs how we interact in, you know, our romantic relationships now as adults. And there's three attachment styles. There's secure, uh, anxious, and avoidance. Um, it is what it is. Anxious is, and I'm actually reading a great book um, about attachment theory. It's called Attached. Uh, I would highly recommend it. It's great. Attached, the new science of adult attachment and how it can find help you find love, find and keep love by Dr. Amir Levine and Rachel S.F. Heller. Really great book. Um, so basically secure, anxious, and avoidant. If you had a really, um, you know, not stable relationship with your caregiver or you you, you develop an anxious attachment style and anxious people are, are normally known as these clinging ones, right? Whom you have all these emotional needs, but when in fact those emotional needs are valid and they can be met by the right partner. Um, and these are people who always think that their partner doesn't, they're not good enough for their partner. The partner doesn't love them as they do, as much as they do, right? And those are anxious people, which I primarily identify as. They're secure people who, it is what it is, they, uh, they crave intimacy like healthy intimacy but when they don't have it they're okay like they're completely fine um they don't need to be in a relationship to be happy right and which is something that i am adapting into and it's very hard to like for people to like 
change their attachment styles, but I'm, I'm finding myself to be a more secure individual, which is great. And then there's avoidant people. Their, their childhood, like maybe they were just expected to be more independent, figure um, things out on their own. And, you know, as a result, they tend to really value independence. Um, and they think like being in a relationship and having intimacy and suffocating. And I think what's great about the book that I'm reading is that it's very like, bias towards anxious people because I feel like in this society we are just so quick to fetishize like independence like oh my gosh like if you're independent like you're strong independent like oh my gosh strong independent woman like you're amazing and you're gonna go far in life when like in actuality like no like it's I mean sure like it's great to be independent but like what are you why are you so afraid of being intimate with someone right like why it is so normal like evolutionarily to want to be connected with someone to want to um have a partner right and but our society is just like oh my gosh like you're right like you don't need anybody like you're great but I think like what's great in therapy is like I've been able to like validate my emotional needs um and I've been able to also uh learn from my therapist that because I've I've had a lot of I'm an anxiously attached person actually anxious avoidant because when things get a little too close or too good to be good good to be true I think I'm not good enough and I'm just like oh no like stop you know um but you know I am for the most part anxious and um what I learned is like I always thought like, okay, I'll just like, fuck it, like work on myself, whatever. I don't, I don't need men, which is true. I don't need men, but it's also okay to like, want to work with yourself while you're like seeking out a partner and like, or being in a relationship. And I think that is like really kind of a mind fuck because I thought, you know, you're supposed to like love yourself before like you love other people or like work on yourself. And then like, you know, the guys will follow and which I, there, I think there is some truth to that, but like I was able to really resonate with the fact that you know I've had a lot of like anxious attachment issues like that I had to like dissect in therapy and I don't know like there's there's a balance like you know I want to be like a more secure person I want to be able to like be independent and like value my independence and my being my own person but also like like be with a partner but a partner who will help me develop into a better and like more secure person I'm like mainly avoidant and it it is like hot and cold and like um, you want to be close with someone, but then you don't trust that they yeah. could be there for you. Um, okay, and then you like back away because you're like, mm, no, this is not it. Um, what, but when you want to like get closer to them anyways. So it's, I mean, there's a whole thing about it. Um, people can Google it to find out more information. I recommend taking the quiz. I made someone take the quiz yesterday because I've been like so into this recently. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, but like funnily enough, like last year when I started therapy, I took the quiz and I was 17% secure. Um, well, that's somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. At least it's 17, right? Yeah. Um, I thought after a year of therapy, I would, you know, improve, be a little more secure. And I took it recently. I want to say last week and I'm still 17% secure. It's okay. <laughs> that's okay. Well, I brought this issue up to my therapist and she was like, girl, what? Like, how can you expect to be more secure when you haven't had a secured relationship? So mm -hmm. I think like it goes back to that point you mentioned of like, you know, you can be independent, you can work on yourself, but like, I don't think you would really be able to work that muscle of your like being secure and like knowing how to set your boundaries or like being in that situation where 
your anxieties and your attachment style is really um like pushed you know yeah I um, like that that like in those moments is when you are able to work on yourself it's mm-hmm. not just like oh when you're by yourself when you're working on self-love like no that's not that's not how life works um like yeah. you can't just expect to be secure if you're by yourself for the rest of your life you know yeah um, I, you're right about the fact that you know what your therapist said about how being in a the reason why you're still 17% secure after years because you weren't in a secure relationship like how yeah. fucking yeah like you learn so much from relationships the reason why I'm still anxious still primarily anxious is because I was with these avoidant guys yep. you know yeah. and I was never in a secure relationship I don't know personally what love is I've never fell in love um and I was never with a secure person um and you know Mm-hmm. tbd on that where, is, <laughs> where are these secure men at you know like, i have no idea yeah, girl oh. i can't tell you yeah. <laughs> um but also that made me think about like do you think because i just thought about this just now mm-hmm. do you think that because we are anxious and avoidant um do you think that we um put a lot of our self-worth or our attention on relationships like does does being in relationships whether romantic or platonic does that kind of control our lives because we have this like attachment style yes I do think it does unfortunately I think growing up for me I was always a girl in my um friend group who was like the most boy crazy like Mm. I would always be like oh my gosh like which guy should I like this year? You know, like I was, yeah. I always had like my eyes set out because um, I wanted validation from these guys um, that would never give me validation because wow. I didn't, even, yeah, it was, it was crazy. Um, and, you know, now like I love, as you can tell, I love talking about relationships because mm-hmm. I like to talk about how it relates to our personal development and our mental health. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, growing up, I've always just been so obsessed with, you know, romance and relationships. Um, And it's weird. I, now I don't feel that way as much anymore, which I think means I'm growing up. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, um, but I think another thing I wanted to say is anybody who who was in my position in where you know you're just like oh my gosh like I obsess about relationships too much like I think that's normal especially now like we're all lonely it's Mm. quarantine pandemic whatever but I I think again like societally we fetishize independence um and we fetishize like this whole like logic of our emotion like um, like we don't need anybody like you know you know, emotions are fucking weird, like, facts don't care about your feelings, whatever, right, and I just, like, you know, I think it's okay to, like, think about relationships, because I think, like, you know, when we think about relationships, and when we think about emotions, like, you know, I was always told growing up that, oh, you're just too emotional, you're just too sensitive, whatever, like, all right, I'm a fucking emotional bitch, you know, I'm, I'm very, very sensitive, um, I think, I mean, I have anxiety, my anxiety makes me very, like, it's debilitating, it makes me incredibly sensitive to things, mm-hmm. um, but, like, why I want to say that is, I think I'm trying to, like, tie together is, like, we need 
relationships to help us develop emotional intelligence right whatever that means like just learning how to like be kinder and, and, and love one another and like be more present. At the same time, we also need this emotional intelligence to like deepen our relationships and deepen our connections. Because for me, like I realized like I was never really a career driven person, but I really valued my relationships, platonic and romantic. Like I really think that is a drive that keeps me going because my whole thing is like, what is life without love? Like, like seriously, again, I've never experienced romantic love before, but I've loved my friends deeply. And I think I'm able to have these deeper connections with them because we are able to have these conversations because, you know, they help me become better people, like more, like more empathetic per they help me become a better people, they help me become a better person. They help me become more empathetic, kinder. And I think, you know, the relationships shouldn't like romantic relationships in particular shouldn't like rule your world and stunt your growth like that's not at all what I'm saying but I think it is so normal to want something especially because I think relationships are always going to be lessons people are Mm -hmm. in and out of your life for a reason and I think those lessons are valuable sometimes very hard lessons right like I'm sure you know like breakups fucking suck but like relationships are mirrors like Mm. you don't know that you're in a toxic relationship unless you're like really in one like with all these guys I thought like you know I'm okay like I was in a hella toxic relationship like I'm okay now no like I still didn't see those red flags with these rose-colored glasses so I don't know I think like relationships are valuable like again romantic or platonic and I I truly think like relationships will help us be better people I think learning your attachment style will help you become a better partner but also a better person and everybody fucking go to therapy (laughs) there it is (laughs) you mentioned like this is so weird that we're so similar you mentioned that when you were younger like you were boy crazy and like you know that was the kind of like focus of your um like childhood I guess you could say um because that was the same for me like in school I'm always like ooh like who should I date like (laughs) (laughs) like I got my (laughs) we 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 got it we we had it you know yeah um and I wonder like you know as Asian women in this Asian body and it, like when we see other Asian women portrayed in media, um, I'm I'm thinking about this um, Taiwanese drama. I don't know if you've seen it, um, Meteor Garden. I'm not, but I've heard of it. It sounds very familiar. Yeah, but there's this one scene where the guy like forcefully pushes the girl against the wall and she doesn't want it but then he forces himself onto her and then it becomes like it's like a big scene it's like very sexy like that's how people see it you know and like there are a lot of other media portrayals of Asian women in that kind of position Um, and I wonder like how much of that is linked together like this idea of like um, like our our um, attachment styles and what we need from other people and what we expect to get back. Um, how much of that is linked to media portrayals of Asian American women's bodies and how they interact with other people. Um, and I know you like studied um, Asian Americans in media. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering, like, I don't know, what do you think about that? Is there a link or how? what are your thoughts? Well, let me just address this whole like, 
the Asian kind of portrayal of women in media, I'm talking about Asian media in general, is something, <laughs> let's just say I don't watch anime, mostly for that reason. Um, and we could talk about like, in the history of just women in Asia being kind of, you know, like the whole idea of like just women being like feminine, um, going back to like the whole idea of like geishas and whatever like for I mean from what I know about Japanese culture is like geishas were very like you know submissive um right now they're commonly mistaken for prostitutes which is not necessarily the case but I mean they're still operating today but they are usually like always serving to their clients always very deferential to their clients who are a male right and I think we know that and specifically East Asian culture, that misogyny is very prevalent and that women are literally second-class citizens. Whenever I go to Japan, I, I feel that a lot. I literally will go on the subway and my grandma will be like, okay, don't get raped. I'm like, all right. So yeah, it's just so casual there. Um, and from my understanding, from what I remember from my Asian American studies classes, um, you know, with like the Vietnam War, the Korean War, um, Asian women were used as sex slaves, not comfort women. They were literally sex slaves. And, you know, I think those kind of, I know there are some films um, that can't name anything on the top of my head, but films about like the war that kind of romanticize like the Asian woman and like the white man, like together, blah, blah, blah. Asian woman thinks like, oh my gosh, like soldier, like white soldier is so, so handsome, so strong. And then the white guy's like, oh, I'm gonna take care of you, baby. You know, like, and, and I, <laughs> I think like that has, um influenced kind of like oh shit like this is what I need to how I need to act to get this certain level of like romance this comfort right like I can just be comfortable by serving like my male partner who is white most of the time right mm -hmm. and but I also want to go back to another point that I was going to try to make and I'm going to try to connect them together but I think I, I think the phrase that immediately struck me when you asked me that question is like intergenerational trauma. Mm -hmm. um, we are, especially for me as a woman, my mom um, loved her to death, but she has been plagued by the very, like, you know, the same like problematic misogynistic ideals in Japan. Like she's had traumatic incidents that happened to her, but she kind of talks about it like, oh, you know, that was like a way of life, right? And like if I were to not be quote unquote woke whatever that means or like more socially aware of like how those things are actually not okay like I think I would have been like oh like you know that is just how as a woman I'm expected to behave my mother was taught to behave um uh in or actually no my grandmother on my father's side was came from a very wealthy background and she had this whole thing about being ladylike like Emily we don't play a certain song on the piano um, or Emily we um ladies I forgot exactly um it was a long time ago but if I didn't have like you know just outside like um influences that told me like oh wait like but like what if like you just like didn't act like that like you know what if you weren't lady like um then I think I would have aspire to be the woman like the model of femininity that my mother and my grandmother like you know kind of put 
out for me. And, and, and I, and I think, you know, trying to link my whole thing about media, like, again, like, because we were, you know, our ancestors were raised this way, mm-hmm. right? Um, they're also influenced by media. There were films in their time. I mean, probably not like the prehistoric times, but, you know, they still, you know, they were people like, there's still people like human beings are influenced by everything. I don't believe in such thing as independent thinker. I think there's no thing as such thing as an independent thinker because we are all influenced by our external, um, you know, factors, right? And including media. And I think by watching these films, these stories and having these kind of uh, depictions of woman, Asian woman passed down generation to generation like we are like essentially creating this kind of ideal model of what a woman should be based on generations of like femininity ideals of femininity ideals of womanhood Mm -hmm. um because if you watch this movie like you know like she got the guy they lived happily ever after and i think that has influenced my you know, ancestors' ways of thinking, and they have passed that down to me. And why am I anxious because of that? Am I anxious because of that? You know, I, I, I couldn't tell you, but I think you know the wanting to like be a part, have a partner, and like to feel complete. Like I think that is definitely like connected. Mm-hmm. I think it might be kind of a reach to like go like oh because of Asian woman portrayal media. I don't know. I think someone should write a dissertation about it and let me know. I'd be very <laughs> interested in reading that. Um, yeah. But um, I think there is. I think for anxiously attached people. Um, we want external validation. Um, I've always wanted external validation growing up from my parents, especially from my father, um, because, you know, I think a lot of, I think a lot of Asian kids want external validation, but the whole stereotype of like, oh, well, just like the parents like never give that to you. Um, and I think that's just so sad because like, I don't know, like I, I why, why not? Like, I think our parents even wanted external validation, but it's cause like, you know, they didn't get it when they were a child. They think that, okay, like, this is the way I should parent it because I came out okay. No, you didn't get, came out fucking okay. You came out, like, fucking trying to traumatize your own kids too. No. Like, you know, like. <laughs> yeah, I think it's because recently I've been thinking about attachment styles a lot and how Asian culture is literally, like, passing down generations of like anxious and avoidant people <laughs> you know oh my um, god wait I'm gonna put that on my wall like I love that <laughs> I love that <laughs> but I was really like I think especially because of this podcast just thinking about my identities a lot and like how that relates to like mental health and attachment styles and like be, like my parents have their attachment styles for a reason and it's because of like generational intergenerational trauma and like I I wonder what the heck my ancestors were doing like why were they um like why did they pass that down to their children how did this culture of not validating your kids and like not talking about issues and trying to save face like mm-hmm. like i i think i don't know i i have so many questions about that um and i wonder if people have thought about um like Asian East Asian culture in that way um 
like, because my dad often says like, oh, this is just how we are, but how you are is traumatizing your kids and (laughs) how you are, um, you know, leads to certain behaviors or certain, um, like sufferings. Um, and I don't know if that's like too morbid to think about, like in relation to an entire culture, but that is something I've been thinking about recently. That actually, right when you said that, I immediately thought about the group subtle Asian dating. Oh, wow. Um, I don't know if you're in it. Um, I left it, but I'm like back in it. (laughs) You did the page, but tell me. Yeah. Um, and I don't remember specific posts, but I don't know. I always just kind of remember like reading posts that were just like "Mm, you know that that isn't it like Mm -hmm. I just felt like they were really indicative of like toxic monogamy like I don't know the whole I really I really can't think of one because I think recently they've gotten a little bit healthier but and I also had a friend a long time ago he brought up like oh yeah I think like Asian Americans are just like really shitty at dating and I was just like what does that mean yeah like now that I think about it like I feel like because you know Asian Americans because we grew up with these really stoic parents um we can't really talk about mental health and you know if we talk about personal development it's in terms of like okay how to be like the most productive but like like that is weird to me because like we should be able to talk about mental health and we should be because as I said before we should be able to talk about like personal development for like our emotional intelligence for like you know how to be more empathetic how to be kinder like how to listen better you know Mm -hmm. and I'm thinking like we don't really do that And and I think all we do is like talk about like oh like when we auction our friends on Central Asian dating, it's like, oh, he has like, he makes six figures. Like he's so smart. He, cause he fucking goes to Berkeley. Like he, he'll buy Boba for you. Like, blah, 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 blah. like he'll go to race with you. Like, blah, blah, blah. I don't care about that shit. Like that shit doesn't like make a long lasting relationship. Like, I don't know. Like I just, I find it, I don't know. Are Asian Americans bad at dating? I don't know. That's that would be an interesting, another interesting dissertation, like because of our in- incapability or or generally our incapability to talk about, you know, these things. Like, how do I be a better partner? I think like, mm. you know, just me exploring, and I don't know about you, but I follow a lot of like mental health uh, practitioners on Instagram. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They drop like the words of wisdom and, and sometimes it can be overwhelming because it's a lot to remember, but, but in general, like, I think it's really helpful and I just... I think about things that I haven't really been able to think about before. Yeah, like I would be interested in, in learning about um, how the general, especially our generation um, approaches, of Asian Americans approach relationships. I hope it's healthier. Mm-hmm. I hope it's not like what our, you know, parents, how our parents grew up with. And I, and I hope it's more communicative. I, mm-hmm. I hope it's more loving. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I hope we're not just, in relationships because of like financial convenience or you know uh, because we've been we have Stockholm syndrome because we're being abused like I I hope it is I hope Asian Americans are like loving each other like loving non-Asian Americans like I think we really I would be really interested in learning more about that yeah I love what you just said um it really is about loving you know loving ourselves loving each other um 
and being able to express that I think because our parents love us but I think they had a hard time letting us know that right like it's like fucking like I don't know like I personally like don't believe in corporal punishment however I never experienced it I'm very Mm -hmm. privileged to not have but I I don't maybe this is from a privileged standpoint I will acknowledge that I don't understand how corporal punishment expresses love maybe Mm -hmm. it does it's just in a way that I don't understand um I don't understand how you know not listening to your child telling your child because you know oh you're young you don't know better expresses love Mm -hmm. um I think I think a lot of parents although well-intentioned and you know understanding that they have like a whole human being to clothe feed and you know take care of and cultivate like they don't really understand like themselves and I'm not saying I'm going to be a perfect parent maybe if we if people were just a little bit more in tune with themselves and and I I think the world would be a better place I truly do believe and call me a radical that you know mental health is the crux of a lot of our issues i mean our world's world leaders are you know people too and they if they don't have the capability of you know understanding that these bo- like bombs and wars like you know kill human beings with lives like again maybe a radical i love peace and love and peace though um i don't know like if they don't understand that then like fuck like i think that's just so sad like yeah. i i think if like our human rights or I mean our leaders cared more about human rights because they realized like oh shit like humans are being shot by the fucking police like humans are going without water these humans literally cannot live because you know they're they have to work like four jobs a, a day and and you know like and they're struggling and they have kids because they didn't get the education blah 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 I'll get into my political agenda some other time but <laughs> I just think mental health is just so important and we just need to talk about it because we the world would be a better place if we were more self-aware yeah um in my first episode I kind of talked briefly about um how to kind of give yourself the love that you want um Mm -hmm. that you want from your parents or you know external validation how can we look inwards and give ourselves what we want and what we need so a question for you is how have you um learned to love yourself and how have you um learned to give yourself what you need i think because i identify primarily as like having anxious attachment I would usually enmesh my own identity um, with my partner. I would be codependent essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wouldn't have my own, I wouldn't have my own identity. I would want to take on my partner's interests. I would want to essentially live my partner's life, keep tabs on them at all times, um, not have my own hobbies. And I think being single because I've always been in like relationships or situationships but like I think being actually single but like not looking for anything in particular and like not seeing someone in particular like I'm able to I don't know have my own hobbies like I think now like I'd be a pretty fun person to hang out with I love hanging out with myself but it took a while to get there I'm not I'll be honest because sometimes like the people I were interested in were kind of involved in my hobbies and I'd be like oh shit like you know like 
I don't know. Like I, I would want to like spend. More, I would use it to spend more time with them. Or, um, yeah. But I mean, it it takes a while um to like find yourself. I think the term the phrase is called. I don't really. I don't know if like I really resonate with that. But um, I think um going to therapy really helps a lot. And to be honest, like this is gonna sound really morbid, but I think suffering like suffering and and I think I was told by a good friend of mine that you know oh like you're so wise for your age you're just so self-aware and I'm just like I got to this point and I'm still doing the work I got to this point because I had a lot of pain inflicted upon me and I inflicted a lot of pain upon other people Mm. and I learned the consequences like and I learned it hard and I there were times I had really crazy bouts of depression bouts of anxiety which I'm still struggling with but I'm in a better place now because I learned those lessons and I think instead of like moping around and I don't want to say moping around but instead of being like oh my gosh like everyone fucking hates me like and going like suicidal which is a real possibility that people will do I somehow luck of the draw was like okay like we need to figure this out like what is wrong why do I keep losing these connections why do I keep like what is this pattern of like discomfort like why is this not what is not working for me um and that starts with like I don't know um for me like my own therapy is I like to go to the gym I'm starting to get into powerlifting I think it's a really fun sport you you pick things up and you put them down um I also I've been trying to read more and 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 I've I guess like a book that has really helped me is well there are two books uh A Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl and it's basically about are you familiar Mm-mm. no um it's a great book it's basically about like what is the man like a person's drive to like keep going and he, he was a holocaust survivor and he had like the worst the worst experience of concentration camps but he talks about even in the worst like human experiences ever like a holocaust concentration camp there were people who were able to you know chug forward because of their mentality again positive psychology is kind of iffy because a lot of people can use it to like um invalidate like you know oppressive systems and you know systemic racism blah 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 and things that are genuinely out of our control but I think what he is trying to do there is like give power back to like and to the person to the individual which I think is really great um and he essentially argues in the book that there are two things that drive people fear and love and Mm. for me I guess I don't know I'm afraid of fucking dying or being homeless but for me I think I I genuinely resonate with like okay like what drives me is love like I want to be able to love know what the romantic love feels like and just love my already existing relationships even deeper another book that's really helped me is um that I'm listening to right now which I wouldn't really recommend listening to because I don't know I just think it's better to like read a physical copy but it's called Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle also a very popular book in the personal development world and it's great for people with anxiety with people who have a million thoughts on their head that can't focus and essentially in the book he argues and it gets a little bit theoretical but he argues that all that matters is is now that you have to focus on the now that all the thoughts about your path like basically the thoughts 
about your past and your and your future are irrelevant. The past and future don't exist. Time mm. is time is fake. Problems are fake. What you're focusing on is on the now. And he brings up this really great point where if you're like genuinely like in fear for your life, like if you're like, let's say like about to get run over by a car, you're not thinking about anything except like the car like about to ram into you with your headlights on and whether you need to flee or stay, right? Like you're not thinking about like, oh, like, is gonna text me back like you know you're not you're not thinking about like the future of like oh am i gonna get this job like, like you know you know all these anxieties because like thinking about the future only gives you anxiety thinking about the past only gives you regret mm. and i think that's a great book and highly recommend it to anyone with anxiety it's great um another one is um atomic habits by james oh, clear i've heard of that one it's a great book um, i just started it um but i'm really excited to finish like just to read it not even to finish it just to, like read it because he talks about like getting your shit together <laughs> um like but with little things little improvements little habits mm-hmm. and um it's, it's hard it's definitely hard um to do i will tell you i'm still like first thing i do when i wake up i look at my phone but you know it is a journey and i think what really excites me is that you know I'm on a journey, although sometimes I will kind of get depressed and I have my bounce and I'd be like, oh my gosh, like, am I going to have to manage my anxiety symptoms forever? Is this something I'm going to have to live with for the rest of my life? But then I'm just like, eh, you know, like I'm, I'm learning things. And I think anxiety is kind of like a blessing in disguise though, because I feel like because of my anxiety, I am able to kind of be where I am today. I'm able to be more self-aware. I'm able to like work on myself more, whatever that means. Um, and then another one is like the basics like sleeping eating you know drinking water i think we want to like take this magic pill to like have our problems go away i'm just like are you like even like doing like the basic things that your body needs so Mm -hmm. and like exercising you know taking care of yourself i think people overlook that so much they're just like no no no. i want like a cure and i'm like no 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 you're not gonna get a cure like you need to get eight hours of sleep you know you need to hydrate so that was, oh my gosh, you just dropped so many gems. Um, I'm going to put all of the resources you recommended in the description box. Um, and I want to end today's podcast with one more question. Mm-hmm. Um, if you could give one advice, only one advice to your mm-hmm. younger self, what would it be? So only one, what if I had two and it'll be, it'd be like, really quick it's just like two quick things so i wrote, wrote about this okay sure yeah but two things are it be like that <laughs> and you'll be right okay i like that that's it that's literally it like i wrote about this whole thing about like whatever like mm-hmm. i'm just gonna keep it like that that's all you need to know thank you so much emily for being on this podcast today thank you so much for making space for me to blabber on i seriously appreciate it <laughs> Um, where can people find you? Instagram, anything like that? Um, ooh. <laughs> yeah, so you can find me on Instagram at Emily Waka Flocka. It's private now, but I'll make it public because what am I, you know, I don't have anything to lose. I feel like I, I, all I post is like food. And like recently I posted a picture of myself, but I'll, uh, yeah. Um, and then you can find me on Twitch. I'm Xiaowang Bao, please X. I can like send that to you. Mm-hmm. I try to stream. I haven't streamed in a while, but I'm trying to stream um, more video games. Um, so yeah, like always love to see people on there. Yeah, no, but thank you so much for having me. Um, you know, again, like this is a really great experience. I've learned so much to like not take up so much space, but <laughs> but thank you again. I really appreciate you having me. 
Oh, of course. Well, thank you all for listening. I will talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.